Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, we've got a great podcast for you this week. It has been awesome. We've been hanging out here in South Georgia at the deer camp and making some great memories, Uh, definitely stacking some deer. Stacking them deep. Oh, yeah, and it has been wonderful. Um, This particular episode, we're going to go into a really awesome talk. We've got a special guest with us, Mr. Rick Ward, the urban air gunner, the man, the myth, the legend himself. Before we get too far into the nuance bend that everything you know that makes Rick tick, uh, we do do have to take a moment to thank our sponsors for this particular episode. Uh, today's podcast is brought to you by Linton Thompson's White Gravy. Mm-hmm. Oh, the ladies go crazy for Linton's White Gravy. Put a little bit of the South in your mouth. You'll be glad you did with Linton Thompson's. White gravy. Great, Southern white gravy. Great friend of the podcast. It tastes amazing. Absolutely. So, you know, it's been a really interesting couple of days, and you guys know uh, that we've done a lot of different videos with Rick, and he's the guy that really introduced me to air gunning, and he's the guy that introduced me to the Air Force Texan. Um, you know, so it really got me into big bore air gun hunting, uh, Rick's also a very, very well-known and well-respected predator hunter here in Georgia. Uh, he definitely knows his way around coyote hunting. So in this particular episode, we want to get into all things that are Rick. So how's things been going for you? Well, things are good, guys. Uh, good to good to see you. I'm glad you're down here at uh, Deer Camp and uh, trying to get comfortable on this couch. It's uh, been a while since I've been on this one. <laughs> so uh, anyway... Uh, no, everything's good, man. Uh, deer season, we're having a really good year this year and, uh, there's just a lot that goes on at, at deer camp and I'm, I'm glad you guys are down here. Matt is getting, uh, he's getting his, uh, <laughs> he's, he's filling his tags pretty dang oh, yeah. quick. Oh yeah. So, uh, but that's, that's the beauty of it too. You know, you work hard to raise deer down here and that's, you know, we're trying to manage deer and keep them here on the property. And, uh, you know, we don't have a big, giant piece of property like a lot of people do but we are we do have a little over 12 maybe 1300 acres 14 somewhere in there i don't know the exact number but uh it, it's a pretty good chunk of property and so i think we're we're uh i guess blessed would be the the word that you know we have a lot more land to hunt than, than a lot of guys do so we're I, good I would agree i think that one thing that i've um experienced so far is that you can have you know, three, four, even maybe five hunters out at the same time. And we're all in different parts of the property and it's not going to ruin each other's hunts. I mean, I'll, I will hear the shots, but it's not necessarily ruining the hunt in our area. Right. So yeah, you'll hear them pop, pop, pop. And you're like, all right, well, I'm still good. I'm still hunting. But, you know, I guess that's just, we are blessed because you have such a large property here that you're able to do that and you're able to help, you know, four or five people fill their tag. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I tell people all the time is that, you know, deer can't decipher the difference between a clap of thunder and a, uh, a gunshot. I mean, they don't, they can't figure that out in their head. Oh, 
that was Bob. He's shooting a gun, you know, or that was thunder from the heavens. I mean, they, they don't understand that. And so there's a, there's a lot of times that you may shoot and miss, but if you're patient, they're going to come back. And, and it's not always enticed by food. It's just, that's their travel corridor. They're scared to go anywhere else. That's the path of least resistance where you're set up. So that is going to, uh, keep them coming. So, you know, and it, it helps to have a, a, you know, pretty good size piece of property to hunt on as well. So for sure, for sure. I've been, uh, spending a little bit of time here over the last couple of days with the, uh, new Air Force Air Guns, uh, Texan 50 cal oh, yeah. SS. And, uh, it's very quiet and it's been performing quite well. And I've noticed that the deer react quite differently when you're talking about an in- integrally suppressed air rifle. Uh, you know, you get a big bore Texan, whether a 45 or a 50 or even, you know, the, uh, 257 in the certain situations. Uh, I would imagine 257 within 50 yards would probably be quite deadly, uh, on a deer as well. Um, but they react totally different to an air gun. It just doesn't have the, the same sound to it. And um, I, I enjoy hunting deer with uh, using suppressed firearms and suppressed air guns because, or moderated air guns. Right. Because I just feel like it's not only, you know, not as, as bad a noise pollution for the area that you're in in terms of neighbors and stuff, which out here isn't really a problem, but in some places um, it could be an issue, right? Where, you know, maybe just like the moniker for your YouTube channel, you know, the Urban Air Gunner. Right. You know, using air guns in an urban environment, you know, you can, yeah, you can hunt in a backyard somewhere in a neighborhood or on a little by street or something and not have to worry about anybody hearing it. And it just seems like a stealthier option. Well, you know, and that's, that was the whole thing about the urban air gunner. Um, it, it, it started on a small hobby farm that I have, um, with people, the houses all around you, you don't, you, you don't want a, a bullet stretching out across the countryside, you know, although these guns do travel a pretty good distance, uh, but it's not like shooting a powder burner. Um, and there's industrial parks out here. The country is littered with industrial parks and there's so many places that a man or a woman or anybody could go and hunt and you, you can call coyotes, you can, you can hunt deer and, 90% of the time, it's just if you ask permission to go in there and, and shoot your air rifle or your BB gun or whatever. I mean, and a lot of places don't even have laws against it. You know, uh, we worked really hard, uh, with the American, uh, uh, air gun sporting association to, um, get the laws passed in the state of Georgia to hunt big game. You know, we worked on that for a couple of years. And so now you can shoot a 357 and up to take big game with. And I mean, it's, I, I don't really prefer the 357 like I do the 457, the 45 cal. Uh, I love it. I mean, I love a 45 cal suppressed, uh, but you're right. That Texan, that thing, it'll walk the dog and kick the cat. It is a nasty air rifle. I like the big bore stuff. Yeah. Primarily because, you know, I, I do a good bit of bullet casting myself now. The projectiles that I'm using are the Nielsen's wage projectiles, which are very, very consistent. Um, great projectiles. I've, I've really liked the Nielsen offerings quite a bit because uh, it is a swage projectile, so you get really good consistency. But, you know, I shoot a lot of black powder as well. So for me, having plenty of bullet molds available for all of my black powder rifles, sure. well, the air gun basically shoots the same type of projectile. 
So I can take a 405 uh, grain, you know, 4570 projectile and shoot it out of my Texan. And all of a sudden, I've basically got what is essentially the power of a black powder rifle, but using air. And no I, I personally like to not have to deal with all the cleanup from black powder. Right. You know, it's nice to be able to just pump the air tank up. Bam, there you go. Go out and hunt. It's dead quiet. No cleanup like you have to worry about with black powder. Definitely got some things going for it in that regard. Absolutely. And a, and a follow-up shot's half the time. I mean, you're not pulling the ramrod out. You're not blowing the, the embers out. You know, there's just, I love black powder hunting. I mean, um, in fact, I used to do it all the time, you know, when I was younger and, and loved it. But big bore air rifles have changed the the landscape. It's changed the way I hunt for sure. So, and then, you know, we've been able to introduce a lot of new people to it. Even down here at the deer camp, just taking the, the small bore, the 25 cows and stuff and shooting squirrels or armadillos or, or just whatever. I mean, it, it always is a topic of conversation. You know, what are you doing? What is that? You know, I don't even hear it shooting. You know, it's, you know, run around with a suppressed 25 cow and hunt coyotes. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun. It really is. I, I plan on getting into air gunning as well, just a little bit. I know that Eric and I talked about um, the Condor, um, and I, I plan on getting into it. I know he offered to let me use his air rifle on this trip, and I just didn't. I've never, I've never used it to take game, so I didn't feel like it was an ethical thing for me to do. I didn't know the dope on it or anything. I know you said, "Hey, it's just you know ten mils at a hundred. I'm like, "Hey, you know, I would just rather use what I'm familiar with, um, what's working for me," but. I really think that one, it can be either an entry level or an advanced level. So, I mean, it's either like entry level, hey, I don't have access to firearms in my country because, I mean, a lot of this stuff is international as well. Um, or you're, you know, more advanced. So, like, hey, I've done firearms. So now I'm going to try to add a little bit more depth to the hunt or I'm going to add a little bit more skill to the hunt because it, to me, it seems like it would, it takes a little bit more skill to hunt with an air rifle than it does with a traditional, you know, rifle. You definitely have to follow up on your shots really well. Follow through. Yep. It's like archery in a way, right? You know, just, just because you release the, the string on the bow doesn't mean that's going to be the perfect shot. You got to follow through and everything. So right. air gun hunting is the same way. Like, you know, you've got to you've got to shoot through the shot. You've got to squeeze the shot, and when that you feel the recoil impulse, when the fire, you know the the air gun breaks, you hear the you know sound of the report. Right. You know, you've got to wait and kind of follow through because it is a slower projectile. It's a larger projectile. Uh, it's not some high speed rifle projectile. So, you know, same thing with black powder shooting. You know, when you touch off that shot, you've got to really follow through because you don't want to introduce any more movement to the to the air gun, right? Um, I fired a shot at a doe at 100 yards the other day. Um, I actually filmed it, and I feel terrible because we didn't recover this doe. But on the film, clearly, when you fire the shot, you can see the, the projectile arc in about 9 inches at 100 yards. Um, so it's a considerable amount of drop with a 50 yard zero on that 50 cal tech. Yeah. It, that was right in the boiler maker. I mean, there's, there's no doubt that she's dead out there, but you know, anytime you, you lose a deer and it happens, I mean, I don't care who you are, uh, how great of a hunter you are, how big your TV show is or anything else, things happen. And, and we try to minimize that. Um, we try not to lose them and, and just, I've lost them and, and have just felt terrible about it. And, um, 
because I hunt for meat. I don't hunt for horns. If you've noticed, 90% of the deer we've ever killed out here have always been doe. Um, we try to let the bucks walk just because, you know, you can't boil the horns. They don't, you know, that antlers don't eat very well. So, um, you know, and I'm also glad that you said something about uh, treating air gunning like archery is because I tell people all the time that you need to bow hunt your, your animals um, with an air gun. It's, it's just an extension. It, it allows you to reach out just a tad bit further than your typical bow and arrow. But on the same hand, you, you do have that arc. You have to watch um, your trajectory. Um, you have to figure out range. That's the biggest thing. Carrying a rangefinder is invaluable. When you've got one, you know exactly how far you've got to shoot. You know what your gun does. And, and air gunners, they, they know their guns better than most people. Because you have to learn that. You have to know what the capabilities of your gun is. It might reach out at 100 yards. But ethically, do you take that shot? Yes or no. That Only you can answer that. Sometimes in, then you have to suffer the consequences. Now, with big bore stuff, I've killed deer at 150 yards and I've dropped them, I mean, just right in their tracks. Other times I've shot them and had to go, you know, 10 or 15 yards and find them. But as you guys well know that this, where we're at on this property, there's some really, really thick stuff that you could have walked by that deer and, and, and walked right past it. Um, and I can assure you for, for the listeners that deer won't go to waste because we're feeding animals. Oh yeah. So, I mean, the coyotes got to eat too. I mean, I That's think right. so L- we can hunt them. Linton's deer sat out there for a few hours and we went to go get it and <laughs> it was got the coyotes yeah, got the it. The coyotes already paid it a visit. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just I mean, it's, it's that quick. And we still harvested that deer. Even with the, even with the coyotes ate, eating like the one leg and yeah, a piece just, of it. Just cut around. Yeah. We just cut around. It was strung it up. <laughs> we har- we still harvested everything that we could and it's, you know, I, I heard him say something that was just the most amazing thing. He said, I'm going to save the stomach contents and the, the gut contents. And I'm going to use it in my garden. And he, like, that really kind of puts that whole, like, use every part Absolutely. of the animal. And he does. And, yeah. and one of the neat things, I want you to have him on your podcast one day. I know it'd be kind of painful. He's Lenton's <laughs> 74 years old. He's, uh, he, he grew up across the road from this property, but, uh, his family, it's been in his family. He's been involved with this property for many, many years. Um, they had a huge hog operation out here once upon a time. They had a huge cattle operation out here. And I mean, this guy has lived off the land for a long, long yeah, time. It blew me away, man. And it was funny because I was coming home from work and he stopped me and asked me, would you come up here to the house and help me tip this big barrel over? I want to clean it out. And I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm going to ferment the innards of this deer and what he does basically you need to know he puts it in a like a strainer sack or something he strains it out and compost it pretty much he ferments it but then he's going to put it mix it into the potting soil and we've got most of his vegetables are covered up because we've had 25 degree weather down here but if you've ever watched in the spring some of the stuff that he grows it's amazing and i often wonder how he gets it to grow so good. And of course, now you know. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is it. Yeah. Secrets out. <laughs> he uses, <laughs> you know, he uses deer, but it, and along that lines as well. Um, if you wanted to tan that deer hide, you could take that brain, that deer brain and you mix it. One deer brain can, can tan several hides. 
cowhides as well. I mean, there's the acid in there. Right. Um, it will actually tan that in, and turn it into leather. Of course, you have to work it. I mean, there's a lot of steps, but you know, the Indians and, and the, even the settlers would use every part of that animal. And that I want to go back to, you said that, you know, we hunt for meat. Sure. on this property and that's why i came out here I, and eric invited me out and i was like hey man my my sole purpose for this visit is to put meat in the freezer um you know of course with the the current you know political climate and the socioeconomic climate i said you know what let's let's get some deer and you know i've been pretty successful we got some deer but i just want to go back to when we dropped it off at the processor my first ever buck that i ever shot today the, the the little kid at the processor jumped up in the back of the truck and he started yanking on this big old buck trying to and he he dang near got it off the back of the truck himself and he looks up and he goes hey can I have the antlers <laughs> this is the first buck I ever shot and I was like you know what I didn't come for antlers yeah I came for meat that's right and that's what I'm gonna get so I was like you know what. They're yours. That's you pretty can, awesome. You can, you can have them. So, like, that just kind of puts it in perspective. Like, we're not here for trophies. We're not here for sure. mounts. We're here for meat. And the majority of them were dope, but I did get a buck. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. And and one of the things, like, now I don't know if you'd had deer meat. You know, a couple weeks ago you were down here with yep. us. You didn't have success, but um, you got to hang out at deer camp. And there's there's a lot more to just killing at deer camp. I mean, there's 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 uh bourbon tastings that go on here <laughs> you know there's i mean there's there's connoisseurs that are you know cigars bourbons food i mean some of the greatest food in my opinion comes from deer camp oh yes now i don't know if you'd had that chicken fried steak ever but and, and i'm it bragging was very, it was very very good i am bragging on it but it's the best i ever had 100 <laughs> percent. so i mean and everybody says that but it's that's the one thing that i cook that i learned how to cook it when i was younger and I have a certain uh, way that I do it that's different from the way mom or grandma or whoever did it. It's it's just the way I do it. And it, it just melts in your mouth. But that's deer meat at its best. Yep. And, uh, and of course, we can take, like I said, we there's so many different recipes. Um, we can cook the back straps on it. Um, but I'm certainly interested in, in cooking more for you guys and I mean, that's just what I love doing. I, I, I really get a kick out of just having everybody down and hanging out. And of course, Eric has filmed a lot of content down here because I've taken him coyote hunting and we've done a lot of uh, uh, videos as far as deer hunting, coyote hunting, air gunning. Uh, we've flown some drones over the cotton fields when they were in full bloom. And I mean, just uh, it's just fun just being away from uh, civilization, so to speak. We're not that far from town, but. Anytime your your deer camp is a mile or two off the road, that's cell service is so yeah. so minimal out here. You get no service yeah. out here, and it's like a nice break because you do get out of the whole societal norm. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the fact that one, you're at deer camp. You you get your yes, you we have a cabin here, but it's still like bare bones. Like hey. You have to dress out your deer. We got a deer hanging up outside. The yeah. way. Like I'm looking through the window and I'm <laughs> yeah. looking at a deer strung sure. up, you know, sure. gutted, yeah. back straps cut out of it. Um, and it's, it's just a great experience. And I think if more people took the opportunity to experience it and like eat the food that you hunt. So Absolutely. yeah, hey, we're going to eat this venison. 
Dude, that that chicken fried steak, venison steak, yeah. was absolutely amazing. And I'm looking forward to all the other stuff that we have to eat. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't um, like fajitas. And I, I do, uh, you know, Eric and, and Chad do videos on canning and food preservation. And, um, you know, that's a really cool thing. And, and when I was a kid, I met a guy from Louisiana who who actually pressure cooked his deer meat. And, and I learned how to do that. I was probably 15, 16 years old, but he taught me how to do that. And then, you know, one day I'm flipping around and I see Chad and him doing this, this, uh, canning video. And I just thought, you know what? I'm getting back into it. And, and really food preservation, if you think about it, deer meat has got the highest protein that you could ever ask for. There's almost zero fat. Yeah, it's it, a really lean. There meat. are zero steroids in it, you know, and so it, it often makes me wonder, you know, if the if the agricultural department, if the government can make tomatoes that are seedless to grow in the middle of winter when tomatoes aren't supposed to grow, whether you're in a greenhouse or not, that's rapid grow stuff. Um, if the farmers can plant corn that is Roundup ready, that there's no weeds growing out of it, they've genetically enhanced all this stuff. What's it do to your body? So, uh, we've got mustard greens right out there too. I mean, there's greens, rutabagas, turnips. We could go out there and pick a mess of greens and we can have some soul food right here. I mean, we can get down. I mean, it's just crazy what grows out here on this property. Um, Absolutely. I think it definitely says a lot to the spirit of America. I mean, like we as a people over all of these, you know, years, you know, have been, a people of self-sufficiency, of independence. And I think that this way of life, you know, just um, harvesting your own food, you know, dressing out your own game, uh, growing your own food, and and knowing all of those little lost arts, right? You know, that's a thing. Absolutely. And I, I believe that our society that we live in now, uh, they tend to not really appreciate those kind of ways, you know. And it's unfortunate that, more of those types of ideas are being kind of thrown by the wayside. Uh, people don't think, oh, well, you know, if, if something bad goes on, I can just go to the grocery store and get food, right? Well, you know, that food comes from somewhere, right? You Absolutely. Know, you don't just get that nicely packaged steak, huh. you know, and, and, and think that, you know, oh, well, where does that come from, right? People don't realize, I mean, that, yeah, you know, you got to kill a cow and you got to butcher him out and you got to cure him and age him and let him, you know, it's all the stuff that goes on with uh, properly processing an animal. And uh, well, look what happened with the pandemic. I mean, they you had not only a shortage of toilet paper, but at its peak, you had a shortage of beef, chicken, proteins. I mean, you go in there, you're lucky if you can find bread and some canned beans, like all of the high, the highly perishable items that people want were gone because that was the first thing they naturally gravitate towards but if you have the skill set to go out and get a deer i watched both eric and linton fully process a deer and linton's about 70 something years old he did it about 74 yeah did it in about an hour and a half sure he basically strung the deer up skinned it and fully processed it in about an hour and a half no meat left on the yeah I mean, nothing. And that's about 100 pounds of meat. Absolutely. In an hour and a half. 100 pounds of meat in an hour and a half. 
And I mean, that it absolutely amazes me where you're going to go and fight tooth and nail for somebody at the Kroger for a one pound or two pound bag of, you know, meat, sure. saran wrapped, and you dedicate an hour and a half of time to get 100 pounds. I'll tell you something crazy. So um, for those of you that don't know that are listening on this podcast, I actually feed my uh, dogs an all raw meat diet. Mm-hmm. That's right. You do. And... um I would say, so I have three Belgian mouths, and this is Rick's episode. I don't want to pony in. <laughs> no, it, that's it, great. Because no. this is all about Rick. It's but, not. Um, well, this this podcast is, is, I really want to get into the nuanced bend of Rick. Oh, but um, I just will mention that I do feed my dogs, you know, I would say total three and a half to four pounds of meat total for all three dogs per day. I mean, each of them gets a pound, pound and a half. Right. So that adds up. You know, you're talking each week I'm feeding the dogs probably 30 pounds of meat. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's up. that's a lot. I mean, and, and again, you're you're giving them a protein that they're not going to get in processed, quote unquote, dog food. I mean, there's there's some dog food that you can buy that's $60 a bag. And, it's, and they'll it's, eat, you know, one of those a week at least. Exactly. But, you know, you add in that meat. And that's the, the beauty of it because you're processing a deer yourself. It's not that big of a skill set. You just got to have kind of a strong stomach to, to be a meat cutter. I mean, it's just the way it is. Uh, I, but I did can, see some stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you can debone that. You can you're debone that see animal. All the things that oh, yeah. make them tick. Absolutely. Yeah. And, but you can debone that animal and you can take that, that meat that you're not going to use and put it in a cooler and freeze it and take it home and pull it out. In one pound bags for each one of your dogs, and you can feed them daily with what you're not going to eat or consume. I, I supplement quite a bit of what I feed my dogs with venison. Um, so generally, the way I'll do it, you know, we'll eat the back straps and we'll eat stew chunks. I usually have. Um, I generally so I, I'd like to touch on that quickly. You know, I, I know how to cut the deer up pretty well, but I, I generally kind of go the processor route because they usually can get a pretty good amount of meat out of the animal. Sure. And like those guys are processing, you know, hundreds of deer a week. So for me, it just makes more sense to let someone that's a professional do it so that I'm not wasting the animal. I guess that's sort of my logic. I mean, and I guess really the only way you're going to get good at it is to do it more. Um, you know, I don't feel um, uncomfortable doing it. I can certainly do it. Um, it's just one of those things that, over time, I mean, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Absolutely. And you it, can tell it is Linton's very time consuming. Time. Oh, yeah. yeah. That dude was in and out like a surgeon. Yeah. A 70-year-old surgeon. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's very time-consuming to cut every scrap of meat off the bone. And But what I do, like I said, I, I, I pressure cook mine, so I do what we call raw pack. I do have a meat grinder, and Linton's got a meat grinder, and Linton's got a cuber up there as well. Uh, so we can we can totally process everything we've got. And I've done it for years because my whole point was to, you know, you've got three kids, you've got a wife, you've got a full-time job, you're paying bills. So for me to go kill a deer on the weekend was extra that that's meat that I didn't have to buy. I didn't have to pay anything for it. And, you know, it cost me, you know, a buck for a bullet. Uh, so, now it does. Yeah, and now it does. For guys that... <laughs> If you're if you're running like a forty five seventy or something, you cast your own projectiles. Sure, you're talking even cheaper. Absolutely, cost and of a, a little bit of powder and and, and a primer. Yeah, 
Yeah. And some roofing tin. <laughs> roofing lead. Well, yeah. Be- before I know you're getting into that, before that, I just say some people might ask why even take it to a processor if you're going to process it yourself. Well, there's pros and cons. One being that a processor will let it hang for seven or eight days before they process it, whereas most people don't have cold storage at the property. Exactly. And they're not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to hang it for that long to get that blood and gamey flavor out of it, which is really what makes it enjoyable. Um, but if you just got to process it, then just go ahead and cut it up. And it's funny you say that, Matt, because. <laughs> Behind door number one, we're going to get a meat cooler out here. Very now, nice. We're, we're, uh, we're actually, Eric and I have been throwing around the idea of getting an old milk truck uh, or some kind of a cooler and and putting it out here so we can actually hang the meat and age it. Like a walk-in cooler? Absolutely. And and aging the meat, now that it's cold out here, we could let deer hang for two or three days. Yeah, that deer's been hanging for two yeah. days, and, just and, right there in the But out- it just outdoors. gets better and better. It's no different than having dry-aged beef. Um, going to a restaurant, ordering a, a 30 day dry aged or 40 day, whatever, they're going to cut the grip, you know, the mold off right. of it. That and you're going to go, Oh, that's the best thing I've ever had. <laughs> so I take everything that I've got. And, um, one of the, one of the neat things about, um, pressure canning, it's extra work. It is work, but anything worthwhile is worth putting time and effort into. Um, so I sent some burger home with Eric the other day. And he had, uh, what did Brandy make for you? Like pockets, hot pockets or something? Homemade hot pockets? Yeah. And, oh. and so she sent me a picture. And with she, and meat. It was Sounds with, delicious. With the venison that I canned. And she sent me a picture. And I thought, there's no way that was my stuff. She made it look so inviting, you know? So the whole premise behind that is if you're working, if you're a working stiff like I am, uh, maybe you've got a family. You come home, you're in a hurry, you're tired. It's already cooked. Pop the lid off of it and you take the raw chunks and it's just like, like stringy beef. I mean, you could do barbecue with it. You can add, you can can it with uh, taco seasoning. You can have it for taco meat. You can make fajitas. I make fajitas out here at camp all the time. And I mean, they go, you're just steadily cooking and it's like, it takes forever for me to get one because everybody's eating them as quick as you can make them. And that's the great thing about having that meat. It's so quick to be able to, to, it's already cooked and it'll store. Uh, you could put it on the shelf in a nice dark spot for five, six, eight years in that jar. Nice. And it's, it's not, it's just perfect. As long as those lids stay sealed and canning is a lost art. And I would encourage you guys that the folks that are listening, if, uh, if you haven't seen the food preservation video that, uh, Chad and Eric did, Chad is a, a whiz. Uh, what his grandpa told him, he listened to it the whole time he was growing up. You could tell he's very passionate about food preservation and uh, he has a very extensive pantry and I'm jealous. I mean, <laughs> absolutely jealous because I don't have the discipline he's got. It is a lot of work. It um, is like gardening and sure. all that stuff in general is just yeah. very, very labor intensive. But you do wind up saving a considerable amount of money. I, absolutely. As well, well, I, I grew a toilet paper tree out here you know, in case <laughs> the next. So, um, but you get, you can buy dry beans. You can buy a five gallon bucket of pinto beans and you can pressure can those bad boys and you can put those up. You can have a whole pantry. Um, there's so many different things you can do for food preservation. And, uh, I had, I'd talked to Eric, uh, well, it was probably a month or two ago. I'd came up with this, this thought of making an MRE that I want, 
you know, and just basically a snack bag with protein in it and a snack and coffee and, and electrolytes. And so I came up with this crazy little thing that, you know, that I made for like $5. And so I've got about 30 of them out there in my storage building that if it hits the fan, at least I've got meals that are protein that I like. It's going to be tuna fish. It's going to be chicken. It's going to be barbecue. And it's all stuff that you can buy that's going to last three or four years. I Very mean, nice. And so you guys might come up here three years later and you're going, what is all this food out here? Well, it's time to eat all our MREs because they're going to expire next month. You know, and just because they're the best buy date doesn't mean you can't keep them for several more years. It's just always right. good to rotate, you know, your stuff. But same way with your deer meat. That's why I put the date. If you look at those jars over there on the I table. I saw that, yeah. I put the date that I canned them, that they were made. So that way you can just kind of keep up. And, you know, 15 years down the road, you might go, uh, Rick canned that 15 years ago. I'm not going to eat that. Right. You know? I mean, worst case scenario, you know, it'd probably still be good. But, yeah. you know, by choice, you probably wouldn't. Well, or crack it open and see what the heck happens. <laughs> well, roll funny, the dice. Funny thing about it is, as long as the lids stay sealed, there's, you know, there's nothing is going to happen with that. But... You know, that's a whole nother subject for another time. And um Well, I'll tell you what, I I know Eric cut two back straps out of that, that deer over there is hanging. I'm gonna take one of those back straps home. I'll leave one here for you guys. Sure. I'm gonna take one home. I I'm think gonna... we're gonna go um cook one right now. Here's yeah, we're we're gonna podcast. go cook some here in a little bit. Yeah. Are we? Yeah, yeah it's late at night. Um, okay. You know, but here's the funny you thing. Cook here's... a couple pieces. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I've got a uh I, I've got a um uh, food processor over there. We can we can take and pull all the air out of it, vacuum seal it, and put it in freezer bags for you, and, and put it in the cooler. And that way, you don't have to mess with it when you get home. So nice. I know. I know. Um, somebody's gonna be picking up three deer from the processor for me, though, and I'm gonna have to go and pick yeah. that up from you. <laughs> well, you know, we've got deer burger over there in the freezer, and that's you know, deer camp. Not everybody has the luxury that we have at this deer camp. You know, Linton built a beautiful cabin. What is this? Probably thirty by. 20, 24 by 30, maybe? It's probably four inch square yeah. feet. Yeah. And and we've got a full bathroom, shower, toilet, sink. We've got air conditioning. We've got heat, kind of heat. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's well insulated. But it's the, the cool thing. I mean, this is like every kid's dream to have a fort. You know, the He-Man Woman Haters Club I mean, for full, a weekend. Full stocked liquor cabinet we, yeah, bar. Yeah, the mantle has got I mean. everything. From rum to bourbon to muscadine brandy, muscadine bourbon. It, it is a it is wine. a it is a very it's a nice deer of camp. alcohol. <laughs> Dare I say exclusive deer camp? Yeah, it is. And <laughs> so it, deer camp's fun, but let's let's get back to Rick a little bit. No, no deer man. camp. Yeah, Rick's the guest. Rick, I don't, we can, I'm, I'm at deer camp. This is my weekend mm, off. Rick was about talking Rick. about deer camp. Yeah, it's it's all you. about us. When we have our guests, though, I do like to to know a little bit. So, sure. What do you want to talk about? Well, all right. So, I think it's important for our listeners also to know that you are involved in rodeo announcing. I, I want you to just, oh. so in your best rodeo <laughs> announcer voice. No. Why do you do that? You know, the funny thing talk is, about people it a go. Bit. You well, enjoy, you really enjoy that though. I, I've been I'm a second generation cowboy. I rode my dad rode bucking horses for a living. I rode bucking horses, bareback horses, uh, in the rodeo, which is one of the one of the events. Um, and uh, 
I've always been a performer. I played guitar and sang in a band for a long time. And, and he does the- excellent for those of you listening. He is an absolute Cut it out. nightmare. You're making me blush. On, on the acoustic. You're making me blush because <laughs> Eric is the master guitarist in this family. Okay. I, I so, think both of you are, are, are very, very good. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, that's one of the things I do. I, I love some people like reading a book. I like playing a guitar and, and, um, you know, without getting drunk on alcohol, I can drown my sorrows in a good song or right I can on. get happy. If I, if I just want a $500 scratch off, I can either write a song about it or play a song that makes me happy or, you know, just something like that. So music has always been a, a huge part of my life, but so is rodeo. And, um, when I got hurt, uh, competing in rodeo back in 1991 or two, I guess it was right around 92 somewhere. I got hurt really bad in Deadwood, uh, Texas. And I look back on it now. It was just insult to injury, but it, it ripped my bicep off my right arm and, and just, you know, knocked a hole through my cheek and my Copenhagen Oof. would fall out when I tried to get it done. It was bad. <laughs> oh, boy. It was bad, you know, and, uh, I healed up from that and, and went back to riding and uh wound up getting kicked in in my knee and it dislocated my knee really bad and jacked it up and i just felt like then it was time to quit and uh, my wife at the time was like um by the way we're pregnant and so that was our first child and so i knew it was time to get a full-time job and you know kind of leave the cowboy thing behind for a little bit because i'd grown i grew up on a ranch i've always been on a ranch and worked cattle and horses and just been that guy uh so rodeo has uh you know, being a performer, it, it was just an accident that I started announcing. Um, had a, had a guy that, um, his wife was very ill. He had to leave and head back to, uh, Texas. And not all rodeo announcers come from Texas. They're from all over the country. And, um, so he, uh, he had to go and they needed somebody to do sound. Well, I was, you know, being in a band and all, I had all the sound equipment. So I did the sound. And, uh, so. It was one of those things that uh, a couple weeks later, somebody said, hey, I heard you're announcing rodeos. I said, no, I was doing the sound there. And they said, well, we want you to come and announce this little bull riding for us. And I said, okay. So I went and uh, announced the bull riding for them. And next thing you know, they're hiring me to do these things. So um, it's, you know, rodeo announcing you're, you're still performing, just like you're on stage, like you're playing guitar and singing somewhere. You're a performer. And, uh, you, you try to keep the audience informed of, uh, who's riding, what the bull's, uh, book is, you know, this bull may have bucked several guys off, might be unridden. Um, guys may have won a hundred grand riding that bull for eight seconds. And so you get to learn all the guys and the gals that are on the circuit, the rodeo circuit. And so basically you're like a, a circus announcer for two and a half hours and everybody, is looking at you, whether there's 500 people or 5,000 people in the stands. And, um, it's very patriotic. Rodeo is the last, I tell people all the time, if you, if you want to see the epitome of freedom, go to a rodeo. There's no, no team doctors, no multi-million dollar contracts. Very few guys are lucky enough to have sponsors. And so they make a living eight seconds at a time or tying a calf or running the barrel race as fast as they can with no guaranteed paycheck. So it's, it's a, it's a way of life. That's a very tough way of life. Um, I can tell you growing up uh, for Christmas, I remember getting a pair of boots underneath the Christmas tree 
some years there was a letter saying, this is the true meaning of Christmas and we don't have the money to buy you anything. I mean, I grew up a very poor child. I, I, th- I think that everybody here in this room, meaning you, me, and Eric, grew up on that, that side. Yeah. And I think it really puts it in perspective of like where you're at now in life. Sure. Um, but the rodeo, those are hard men. Hard men, hard individuals. And when I think rodeo, that's what I think of. Like cowboys, like yeah. they're ran- they they work on a ranch and they happen to like riding bucking bronx or riding bulls and that's what they do. They go out and they're like, hey, I got a rodeo this weekend and I might not get paid. Heck, I might get hurt and I might not be able to work for the next two weeks. Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not going to get paid for it. But I'm willing to take that chance because it's something that I love doing. High risk, high reward. Yep. You know, there's guys that make, you know, of course, with the pandemic, I mean, it, it killed me. Um, I'm not going to mention numbers, but I mean, there's, there's a very lucrative living that I make, even though I work a full time job for insurance. Um, rodeo is a huge part of my income every year and the COVID killed it. And, and I'm one of just one of the few guys that has a full time job. I've got friends that were out there starving to death because they're, they're having to go drive trucks or sack groceries or dig ditches just to, just to make ends meet for their family. And, uh, and again, and I tell people all the time that is, uh, I mean, that's the epitome. I mean, these guys will do whatever it takes and, and they'll look forward to the next time that they can compete. And you don't compete against each other. You compete against an animal that wants to buck you off or you compete against yourself. It's like playing golf. You know, you're not competing against that guy playing next to you. You're competing against yourself right? to see how good you can actually, you know, play golf. And um, so, yeah, rodeo is just a huge, huge part of my life. And I, I do more sound production now. So because there's less headache, um, you know, being a rodeo announcer is like a sportscaster. You've got to have, you know, you, you study. entertaining people. Well, you are, but you've got to study. You know, you you get a list a week in advance of who's entered in the rodeo. And if it's a big rodeo, you might have 500 contestants. And 150 of them might have won major rodeos around the country. And so you've got a list of all their accomplishments. And you take and make bullet points about them and where they're at the standings now. And uh, there's there's a lot of homework to be done. So, But when you're doing sound production, you show up a couple of days before the rodeo starts you, you put all your speakers together, you crank them up on scaffoldings and, uh, you run all your cables and, you know, you patch into the TV truck. And, you know, I mean, from there on, it's like the Rick Ward show. I play whatever songs make me happy. I mean, it's, and it's funny because the opening, all I have to do is hit my cues and the openings are all very patriotic. You know, we use soldiers, we use, uh, first responders and anything patriotic because again, it's, it's what America stood for for many, many years. It's, it's, it's a violent sport. I mean, it's, uh, it's strength itself. And then that's what, what sold rodeo was strength. And that's what America was founded on was strength and determination. And I've had people come to rodeos and go, Oh my gosh, would you write that down? Can you give that to me? And I've just never, I've ne- nothing's ever been scripted. Uh, I actually got fired from a rodeo one time for not reading their script. And I told him, I said, what I say comes from the heart. I mean, it's off the cuff and I never know what's going <laughs> to, you know, I never know what I'm going to say in the opening, uh, when I was announcing like that. And I only announced maybe 15, 20 rodeos a year. The rest are all sound production because I love, uh, 
doing sound. Love I, putting all those speakers up. I could not imagine. Like in my mind, when you say rodeo, I know you so you said you rode bucking broncos. Yeah. Which is extremely dangerous. Sure. In my mind, when you say rodeo, I think like these massive bulls, like bulls, oh, they're, bulls, yeah, they're tough. bulls, like these things that just, their sole purpose in life is to get you off and just maim you. Like that's what they want to do. Some of them. They're brutish. And I've, I've yeah, like you, some of them are. I, I think people severely underestimate the size of a bull and the fact that these cowboys are sitting on top of these animals and they haven't even got paid yet. Like, yeah. They are sitting on top of this like huge bull for free. Well, you know, you pay an entry fee. It's not free because yeah. you actually pay, depending on the rodeo that you go to, you pay, you know, an entry fee that could be anywhere from 50 to 75 to $250. So you're, you're paying. Yeah. For this ride. You're donating money if you buck <laughs> off. So it's, it's a very interesting sport, man. And it's, um, it's just something I love doing. The camaraderie is, it's a lot like deer camp. You know, I get to see these cowboys uh, about every weekend. Some of them only get to see a couple times a year, but there's, there's relationships there that, that have been forged and will last a lifetime. Cause I guarantee you, I could go in my phone list right now and I could dial any one of those guys and say, I need you. And they would either fly down here on an airplane or they would drive all night to get here. Wow. Uh, I will it's, tell it's you something. It's very entertaining. Yeah. I, every time I scroll by a, that on, like, say, when ESPN used to run rodeos, yeah. you just, you're, it's captivating. Like, yeah. Now, watch, it's, now it's the Cowboy Channel on one of these yeah, sports you, you, RFD you'd watch TV or something. And yeah. You'd, you'd see him bucking around. You're like, well, I have to watch it now. Yeah. I have to see if he makes the full pull. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. Is he going to make it? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so let's switch gears a little bit, if okay. we can. Um, coyotes. All right. Oh, now, yeah. yeah. You're the guy that got me turned on to coyote hunting. Right. So how long have you been hunting coyotes? I started hunting coyotes when I was 12 years old. I uh, I wanted to be a wolfer. I wanted to be a trapper. I had these big dreams of coonskin caps and a big old beard and, you know, beaver boots and just coming out of my cabin with wood smoke and just trudging through there and just trapping everything I could find. And when I was a kid uh, in, in high school or junior high and, uh, I'd get up in the morning and go run a trap line and I had maybe 25 traps and I would have to pull the animals out of them and uh, clean them and skin them and put them in the freezer and get them ready to sell before I went to school. And then reset the traps. Uh, well, I would, sometimes I'd do that in the afternoon when I got home. So it was a, it was a continual cycle. Mm. And uh, so I read an article in sports, of field or field and stream about the, the, how tough coyote hunting was. And back in those days, back in the early eighties, guys didn't, they didn't use what we get today. Uh, two, two, three was really not even a thing. I mean, Probably the civilian market was not 22250s, um, 3030s, just whatever you had. 22 mag was really popular. And, uh, you know, AR 15s were not in the vocabulary of most people back in those days. Um, you know, it was, you had to be in the military to have one or you had to, you just didn't see a civilian market for AR-15 like you do now. It wasn't the popularity of it. Hmm. So uh, fast forward there, I read that article and I was talking to a neighbor, a rancher, 
And I was telling him about this article about calling coyotes. I said, I just don't see how it could be that hard. He said, I just happen to have an old call. And I've still got that call to this very day. It was a Weems wild call. It's a wooden call. It's hand carved. And it's got a little squeaker down inside there. And it makes it simulates a, a rabbit in distress. You know, wah, 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 you know. And um, so I went out there. And I boy, just blaring it. Wah, wah, wah. And all of a sudden, I look up, and here comes this coyote. I mean, full bore, running. And I'm, I'm, I'm just in awe. I can't get my gun up. I'm, I'm looking at this call going, did I just do that? And the coyote ran past me. I mean, wow. just ran right past me. And I was, I was amazed. And I've never looked back. I mean, I've been, been hunting coyotes for all these years. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to hunt in Wyoming and Nebraska and Texas and uh, Nevada. So- before we go any further, let's talk about why you hunt coyotes and the conservation point of that. Because some people listening might say like, well, why are you hunting coyotes? There's a purpose for it. Absolutely. Especially being on a, a like from a management perspective. Sure. When you don't have, uh, when they don't have like um, apex predators above them, say like a mountain lion or uh, anything like that humans would have to be the apex predator and that um but well you you can you can probably tell them more on that so growing up on a ranch you know that i get to see i got to see things and it was exposed to so many things that, that the average person didn't get to see and come calving season obviously when an animal gives birth there's a placenta there's afterbirth and that attracts the coyotes. That attracts bobcats, mountain lions, wherever you're at in the country, wolves. And so if you have a heavy concentration of coyotes, coyotes are animals of opportunity. They're real bums. I mean, they would eat a tin can if they could digest it. And so uh, they're a very adaptive animal. So during calving season, and they're very nomadic. Let me, let me tell people that, that they're very transient. They will travel around the country. We've got, we've got documented records of, of coyotes leaving Georgia and winding up in New York city with tracking collars. So, uh, these coyotes will concentrate on these calving areas with the cattle ranchers and stuff. And they'll, you know, you get a weak calf that's having trouble getting up. Well, that coyote is going to go, well, you know, all the placenta and after all the good food's gone, I'm going after this guy. And it's basically the bullies are going after the weaker kid. And, uh, and the, the sheep farmers, I've got friends in Wyoming that the coyotes are so rampant that they have guys that are called ADC guys that the government hires aerial den control. And they fly these J three cubs and they'll fly down low and they'll shotgun them from the, from the airplanes. Whoa. And, uh, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it's awesome. And, uh, so coyote hunting, the coyotes, it would take, it would take years and years for every hunter to be able to go and, and try to kill out the coyote. The government used all kind of different chemicals to try to kill coyotes. And I wish that if, if we were videoing this, I would, I would show you, I've got things in there called M44s where you take a 38 cartridge and you put it down in there and you put a piece of mole hair on there with cyanide capsule under it. And when the coyote reaches down to hit it, it hits a firing pin and shoots that cyanide into their, their throat they walk two yards and they're dead the government used that the government used 1080 paste which was a a cyanide paste 
But then it started killing eagles and fish and other good animals. Mm-hmm. And so they had to come up with a different way. So they have the guys that fly the airplanes and, and nonsense. But um, so as far as being a coyote hunter, there's guys that hunt coyotes. We'll never run the coyotes into extinction. I mean, the only thing that would do that would be a devastating disease that would have to run. I mean, just rampant across the United States, kill all the coyotes. They're like roaches. So it's 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 more it's coming from like a management perspective. Sure. You're like you have to manage that population. Sure. I know in Georgia, um, there's just not uh, they don't they don't have any predators for the coyotes in general. So really, it's our responsibility because I've gone coyote hunting with you, Eric. Um, it's our responsibility to kind of manage that as well as to help the deer population, right? Because you want to make sure that they're not getting fawns at an early age you want sure. them to kind of grow up and, so, and mature have you noticed how big our coyotes are in georgia yeah our coyote the body stature of our coyotes are much bigger than you might find out west new mexico or texas our coyotes here are are crossbred with the red wolf which was a north georgia and virginia and up in the carolinas the indians called them brush wolves and if you notice that our coyotes have more of a red tint Mm-hmm. that's because of the breeding, the crossbreeding from the uh, red wolf. The coyote was introduced to Georgia accidentally, I might say. It was actually in Barber County, um, Alabama, which is just across the line here, uh, right across the Chattahoochee River. In 1941 or 42, they accidentally released uh, several pairs of coyotes thinking they were fox puppies. Kit Fox. It was, <laughs> it was a total accident. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's where all of a sudden we started getting this huge influx of coyotes breeding. I mean, they breed, they'll give, they're adaptive breeders. So if the coyote population is just huge, there only might be three or four pups in a, in a litter. If it's a very low, uh, population of coyotes, there might be 12 to 14 in a litter. Um, I actually raised a coyote pup one time and she bred with coyotes. She got out and bred with coyotes and came back to my barn and had gave birth to four coyote pups. And, um, and it, it was, it was the most amazing thing. And that, it taught me so much about coyotes having a coyote. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're very docile. They're, they're just a, they're, they're such a meek animal. I mean, they're, you can walk up and grab them around the neck. If you get them in a corner, they're going to show their teeth. They're going to bark. They're going to growl and they're going to try to bite at you. But once you get your hand around his neck and get a hold of him with two hands, he's going to go limp, just like an old possum. Um, and, and of course people are going to go, well, then why would you kill them? Well, it's because they're eating machines. God made these animals to eat these calves and house pets. And that's one of the things about the urban air gunner was being able to go and shoot coyotes within the city limits of certain places. So we didn't, you know, we can, we can save the pets basically for, for people. So we've lost a few in my neighborhood to coyotes. We have a pretty big coyote problem. Atlanta has got a huge, um, Fulton County. They've actually shut Atlanta airport down for coyotes on the runway. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty well-known thing. Um, I'm in DeKalb County, and uh there's quite a few in our neighborhood and like they'll lose small dogs, cats. And like they certainly are not afraid to, you know, go into urban environments and oh, absolutely. look through trash. I yep. mean, they're opportunistic animals. They're gonna 
go around, try to find things to eat. Uh, what no I laugh at, get it. what I laugh at is when people are like, oh, there's a coyote in my garage and they got a picture of, you know, they got a little piece of bologna. They're trying to feed it. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there, there comes a point where if you don't know what you're doing, that coyote's going to run over you or bite you or something. Just blast them. And, and you just, <laughs> you know, and that's the cool thing. You know, we're going to hook you up and get you, you know, shooting coyotes in your neighborhood. And it's cool because I've got people that email me from all over the country that, that shoot the rifles that you and I shoot, the Air Force. And they have, uh, they have just been crazy about learning how to shoot with an air gun because it's quiet. It's simple. And, uh, again, you have to, you know, pick your shots, but, uh, it's, it's just air gunning is just such a great way of, of going in and being able to, uh, to take care of and dispatch some of these animals and some of the coyote furs. I mean, on a good cold year, I mean, some of the coyote hides will bring anywhere from 10 to 20 bucks. I mean, it's more work, but at the end of the day, um, you know, I've got a coyote out here. One of my coyotes is uh, stuffed. I killed him in Kansas a million years ago. He's out there in the bunkhouse, yep. you know, on the night table. So, uh, anyways, it's just, you know, air gunning is just something cool. So, I think that air guns provide a certain, you know, discipline that mm. you have to have for the, for the, uh, for the sport. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you have to be stealthier. The, the air guns, you know, especially the Air Force options. And I'm not saying anything negative about Air Force, but. You know, the SS models, especially with the big shroud, I mean, they are rather long guns to maneuver. So you almost have to treat them like a black powder rifle. Sure. Uh, in terms of how you would maneuver it into a firing position from a deer stand or right. a, a blind or something like that. So they do come with their certain, um, you know, challenge level um, that is probably going to be a little bit difficult for some people. Well, on but the I big board. Once you're ready to take that, that, you know, that big step though, it's a highly rewarding, uh, style of hunting. And, um, I kind of view it as like the, it's kind of bridging the gap between black powder and bows. Absolutely. I'd agree a hundred percent. Can you use those during primitive weapons? Yes. In Georgia, you can. Oh yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the other thing too, is that, you know, with, with a 25 caliber, um, if you're shooting a, a shorter small bore gun, they're not as long. Uh, the reason they have such long barrels on the big barrel, uh, on the big bore is because you have to have that pressure builds up and you get the speed out of it. You get the velocity out of it. It takes time to build up. You know, it's kind of like reminds me of, and I know I'm fixing to date myself. It reminds me of like when, when Popeye's cheeks got really big before he shot a spitwaters. <laughs> it's like you got all that air has to build up in that barrel and, and work its way down there to knock that projectile out. So. Yeah, it, and it is a little cumbersome, but you know they've got a they've got a uh, carbine model on that fifty cal now that I can't wait to get my hands on because uh, yeah, the hunting that we do. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, brush hunting like like we do. We we we're fortunate to have some open field shots. You know, we've got some two or three hundred yard shots out here that we're not going to take with an air gun. Yeah, but the majority of the stands that we have set up specifically for air gunning would be great for that carbine. I've been really happy with it. And, um, you know, I, that 50 cal is a really sweet piece of hardware. It We're is definitely going to, I need to fill my tank actually. That's why I didn't take it this afternoon, but I'll get that thing filled back up. And you've been uh, putting, you've put, been putting in work with that 50 cal, man. That's such a cool air gun. 
Um, Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Man, on thanks this for inviting me. I, I appreciate it. I, I'm glad you guys are down here and, um, I'm glad the whole crew's down here because this is kind of like a once a year deal for us to all get together for sure. and just shut off the outside world. We all have businesses. We're all working. We all have families. We all have our stuff. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like we can just let our hair down and, and sample cigars and bourbon and, Great food and, and you know stack deer. Yeah, Man. I mean kill deer. That's what we're I here know. For. Freaking Matt over here, like the freaking Viet Cong over there, freaking gunning everybody. <laughs> Man, here. he's uh, yeah, he's got legs. He's stacking them. If it's brown, it's down. That's his. There's well, yes. I think as we come off this podcast, we may have to go fire up a couple of backstrap. Oh chunks. yeah, uh, let's do it. You know, and, I've got uh, some see, olive oil. Yeah, and I'm gonna cut some medallions. Let's do that because I got Matt's some macaroni and cheese. Morning, so yeah. let's 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 cook some venison. Let's do macaroni and cheese and venison medallion backstrap medallions. I'm down for whatever. <laughs> I'm so, ready. I'm all ready. Right. Well, guys, have a great week. Um, tune in every week for uh, Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. Thank you so much. We really, really appreciate all of you. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, go over to Ballistic Inc. Pick yourself up a snazzy t-shirt, hoodie, hat, beanie, maybe some mugs, patches, whatever yeah. you want. We got Whatever you like. We got it. Yep. And also, make sure you go over and sample some of Linton Thompson's white gravy. Uh, you will never regret putting a bit of the South in your mouth. Mm-mm. Yummy. What a creamy consistency. <laughs> Guys, have a great week. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. So long, farewell, and happy trails. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.